So we're holding this press conference following the Monday morning arguments in the U.S. Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia in the landmark case Environmental Health Trust at Al versus the Federal Communications Commission. This historic case is filed jointly with Children's Health Defense, Consumers for Safe Cell Phones, numerous other petitioners, including Elizabeth Barris, Theodore Scrato, that is myself, uh, Michelle Hertz, Petra Broken, Dr. David Carpenter, Dr. Toral Jelter, Dr. Paul Dart, Dr. Ann Lee, Virginia Farber, Jennifer Barron, and Paul Stanley. Environmental Health Trust at Al versus the FCC seeks to have the court order the FCC to remand, vacate, and update its 25-year-old exposure guidelines for radio frequency radiation from cell phones, cell towers, Wi-Fi, 5G, and all other wireless networks and communication devices. And I'm here with um, Environmental Health Trust Council, Ed Myers, and Dr. Deborah Davis, President of Environmental Health Trust. Uh, Mr. Myers worked with the Natural Resources Defense Council in a successful challenge to an order of the FCC that sought to eliminate any environmental review of 5G cell towers and transmitters and small cells. For over 40 years, Mr. Myers has represented government, trade associations, and private clients in complex regulatory matters involving energy, telecommunications, and environment. Mr. Myers. Thank you, Theodora. Uh, I haven't really prepared extended remarks. I can talk generally about the case and give you some reactions to the oral argument from this morning. The case uh, concerns a 2013 notice of inquiry in which the Federal Communications Commission decided voluntarily to reconsider its safety and health standards as regards radio frequency radiation from wireless devices and infrastructure. Over the course of several years, the FCC received thousands of comments and over a thousand, including over a thousand scientific studies and multiple submissions by individuals affected directly by radio frequency radiation. In 2019, in December of that year, the Federal Communications Commission decided that the evidence submitted was not uh, uh, adequate to cause it to rethink its safety standards. Those safety standards were implemented in 1996 at a time when most wireless devices were 1G or 2G and uh, certainly not reflective of the current environment where we're, the country is being urged to move forward into uh, 5G type devices. Usage of these devices has changed. The devices are more ubiquitous than ever. With 5G, the radio frequency radiation emitted by the infrastructure and by the devices will be nearly inescapable. The term has been used uh, to call this uh, electro smog. It will be unavoidable. And uh, there, were, there was considerable testimony and uh, evidence that is in the record pointing up the harms from radio frequency radiation. And the basis of our complaint was that the FCC should have looked at this evidence, but did not. It relied on the Federal Food and Drug Administration's conclusory statements, but the Food and Drug Administration also did not look at the evidence. And judging by the Reaction of the judges this morning, I think they agree with that. We are 
optimistic, but not certain that we will get a remand, a vacatur of the order terminating the notice of inquiry and a reopening of that inquiry so that the FCC can do a better job, a legally adequate job of assessing the evidence. And we're confident that if it does that, it will realize that the regulations, the standards that are currently in effect from 1996 are not adequate for today's environment. Arguably, they've never been adequate, but today it's even more uh, certain that they're inadequate and need to be revised and updated. Um, I'm happy to take any questions after Devra uh, makes her short statement. Thank you. Dr. Davis? Yes, um, we were delighted with the hearing today because it's clear that the judges did their homework. It was very impressive uh, to see uh, that they really got into the details of the extensive record that was developed by Mr. Myers and Mr. McCullough, including um, thousands of submitted peer-reviewed studies. I thought it was quite interesting that the judges really honed in on this question of how the FCC relied on such thin evidence um, from other agencies. <clears throat> and in the record, there are, is a letter from Norbert Hankin when he was a member of the Radio Frequency Work Group in which he urged that the FCC revise its approach to cell phones. And that, that record of that, of that letter has never uh, been answered. Most importantly for us, um, just yesterday, the Swiss government has a committee that it has appointed, um, I think they've been in existence for six years, that completed an extensive comprehensive review of all of the evidence, including experimental studies, as well as epidemiologic evidence in people and other studies and concluded that there is evidence of harm happening at levels for which there is no heat. So this is exactly the point that we've made in our brief and it, it supports what we're doing. And one of the judges asked, are there any international standards uh, that are more strict than the United States? And the answer is yes. And one of them happens to be Switzerland where it's the home of the World Health Organization. Uh, they have taken the issue of RF uh, very, very seriously. And we're pleased that the judges even raised the question of other countries because we are in fact behind a number of nations. And I think that's a point that we will be making to the court uh, in our reply uh, shortly. At this case, it was argued by Scott McCullough. Children's Health Defense has separately filed a suit and our suits were joined by the courts. So we've worked together to file briefs in this case. And Mr. McCullough presented the argument at the hearing so we look forward to taking your questions, but I wanted to just say the science on our issue, which is what drove Environmental Health Trust to engage in this lawsuit, is strong and getting stronger. And I was pleased to see that the courts appear to agree with that. Um, let's see what happens next. Thank you, Dr. Davis. Um, I'd also like to mention that there were um, amicus briefs filed in our case. Uh, the National Resources Defense Council filed an amicus brief and the need for environmental review. And that was signed onto by mayors and council members from several states, Maryland, Massachusetts, Michigan, California, and Hawaii. Telecom attorney Joe Sandry filed an amicus brief as well. And that include a statement from Dr. Linda Birnbaum, former director of the National Institute of Environmental Health Sciences, 
and former director of the National Toxicology Program, uh, talking about the unfounded criticisms of the National Toxicology Program. By the way, criticisms that the FCC brought in with their reply to uh, our joint evidentiary brief. And Dr. Birnbaum talks about and quotes Dr. Ronald Melnick's published uh, data showing that those are unfounded criticisms from ICNRF uh, and the FDA and states, overall, the National Toxicology Program findings demonstrate the potential for radiofrequency radiation to cause cancer in humans. The Building Biology Institute, as well as the Kleiber family, filed briefs on injuries sustained uh, from exposures, which are within FCC exposure guidelines. And all of these briefs are uh, exceptional readings um, that lend a lot of important information. I also wanted to point out the judge, the judge has asked a lot of really important questions, but we also have on the record and mentioned in the joint brief, letters from the interagency work group, which was mentioned because um, just to kind of drill it down, a question that many people have is, well, who is making the decisions about whether, about what the science says, what expert groups are making those decisions? And um, there used to be, although we, as we understand it, it's general, it's all but defunct, uh, interagency work group uh, that included representatives from the FDA, EPA, and numerous uh, health and environmental and other agencies in the US government. And there are letters signed by several of those members on the record, which talk about problems with the current limits for wireless that we have right now wireless radiation, such as increased sensitivity of different parts of our, parts of our body, different tissues, uh, children, modulation, which is really important. Um, so that is on the record. And I am thankful that um, this house of cards, this mirage, that, that there is safety is, there's some sunlight getting on this story. So I had some questions for Ed, the, the first questions that, are, that many people are asking which is, can the uh, FCC um, appeal? And if so, what would that look like? And any thoughts on what the new administration, any actions by the new administration and what they can do in regards to this issue? If, <clears throat> if the FCC gets an unfavorable decision from its point of view, it can do two different things to try to appeal it. It can ask the entire court in the DC circuit to rehear the case on bonk, or it can file a petition for certiorari with the US Supreme Court, which the, the Supreme Court may or may not accept. But uh, those are its only two options. Otherwise, the case would be remanded and sent back to the FCC. What was the second question? I can't hear you. Sorry, the Biden administration, if there's any, anything that the administration can do in regards to this issue, any changes that could happen or action at the federal level? Well, certainly the, the, the Biden administration could uh, reopen the proceeding unilaterally. It doesn't have to wait for a court decision, which would give us the relief we were seeking. Um, right. Or, or it could take even more drastic action, which would be to move forward based on the evidence with a new rulemaking. So it, ha it has any number of other options it could pursue, I imagine, but it's certainly uh, 
free to do as it chooses, provided it gets the votes from the commission. Yeah. Thank you. Dr. Davis, do you want to mention about our um, drafting a letter and to the Biden the yes. administration? Thank you. Yes, we are working with Professor Paul Benishai in Israel, where the standards are much more strict, um, to write a letter to the Biden administration where we're going to urge them to take this action. We're not in this lawsuit in order to just prove a point. We're in it because we think that standards that are 24 years old need to be changed. The Israelis, for example, would never have a cell tower right on a school, right near a school. There are regulations uh, controlling that. They uh, limit the amount of wireless radiation in schools. And like a number of countries that uh, we have on our website, there are many that have stricter standards than the United States and particularly with respect to schools. So um, I think there's a, there's a lot going on um, that is in support of what we're trying to do. Thank you. And um, there are several, uh, several countries and I'm gonna get together a graphic after we go through a few questions showing um, India, uh, Russia, China have much more stringent levels of uh, allowable levels for radio frequency radiation exposure. And of course, as you mentioned, many countries don't allow cell towers on schools or restrict them in neighborhoods and have actually limits that are for what they call sensitive areas, which would be near homes, schools, hospitals, parks, and so forth, where they have more stringent limits or policies that are generally accepted where they have more stringent limits. And as a matter of fact, uh, as you refer to ICNRP, and I assume most people are aware, it's the International Commission on Non-Ionizing Radiation Protection. And it is a self-appointed, self-monitored group of about 12 or 13 scientists, uh, many of whom have direct or indirect ties to industry. That is the standard that is the basis on which the FCC is relying at this time, even though many experts who are not part of that, but are experts in the field, have questioned the view of ICNRP and countries like India have instituted standards that are one-tenth that of ICNRP. So there's a big challenge to what ICNRP has said. And again, their, their, their work is being updated now. I know with some interest, that a member of the new Swiss committee, uh, I think was chaired by Mikey Mevison, um, who is an outstanding toxicologist, but a member of that committee uh, for Switzerland is also a member of ICNRP. So perhaps that augurs that ICNRP is going to be making a change as well. I'm referring to Professor Martin Rusley, but I think it's, it's too soon to say. Thank you. I had a, a question um, for Ed. The judges asked some fairly tough questions of the FCC. Is it your sense that the court will at least, will at least remand the order for further work? Well, that, that is the part of the relief we're requesting. I'm very hopeful. Um, you know, I don't, I don't want to overcommit, but uh, the judges' questions were very uh, challenging to the FCC. So we're, we're very hopeful that that's the result we end up with. Thank you. Um, what do we know about these committees in the FDA that they keep bringing up? Is there hope that they will adequately review the health evidence? 
I would just like to add something um, before we end. Well, I'm going to half answer that question and say that the FDA is not tasked to review uh, issues related to impacts to birds, bees, trees, or our natural environment. So um, at least uh, they don't have expertise in that. So that is one of the critical issues here, because even if the FDA did review, do they have the expertise themselves to look at the natural environment and wildlife? Do you, do you want to add any more to that? It's the committee. Uh, may, I, may I point out that the evidence on wildlife has been accumulating. Was, was A letter was sent officially from the Department of Interior Fish and Wildlife Service to the FCC in 2014 by Albert Manville, who was then an expert for the F, uh, for the Food and Wildlife Fish and Wildlife Service, sorry, and that letter specifically identified problems with wildlife, birds in particular. Subsequently, in the record, we have submitted extensive evidence on how 3G, 4G, and 5G pose serious risks and threats to growing plants, including a meta-analysis, a machine learning analysis of what had been done on studies on plants alone. Um, and there were also was a machine learning analysis on in vitro tests. And I think it's very important uh, that at the very end, our council noted that if you look at all of the evidence at this point uh, combined, that the weight of the evidence, particularly in independently funded studies clearly shows that non-thermal levels of this radiation can damage uh, a, a number of things, including of course, the fact that there are individuals who suffer greatly from sensitivity to this. They are experiencing illnesses at levels that others don't, but they are effectively increasingly unable to find a place to live in modern society. And this is a serious and growing problem. Thank you. This is a, it's a, it's been documented. There were so many comments from people who've been injured and who are looking for a safe place to live. And unless we have policy change, it, it's impossible to find a place and especially with, and someone brought up uh, satellites, how will this decision affect the satellite deployment? And I, that's a good, good question because in NATO, uh, which we are now part of more officially again, uh, in December of 2019, issued a declaration on the importance of, of 5G as a question of defense. And I think we wanna be clear that the technology uh, probably properly does belong in national defense and national security, um, but wireless is not the way to go. We have argued and have submitted to the record that fiber optic cabling uh, is a way to solve many of the current problems that we have. And in the letter to President Biden that we will be issuing, we specifically call for a massive jobs training program to train people to install and distribute wired fiber optic cable, which should be available as a right for municipal broadband. We think that it's important for people to treat uh, access to the broadband as a public utility and public right. That will help to, <clears throat> to eliminate the digital divide that has affected our children now during this pandemic when they have been supposed to be in Zoom school and many of them have 
have not had access uh, to Zoom. Parents have had to drive cars to parking lots outside of stores so the children can get their homework done. But if, if wired internet service were provided in urban areas where it can be provided, this would substantially alleviate the problems of transmission. And it's something that we're very encouraging, uh, should ha has to be considered and looked at <clears throat> very, very seriously. Thank you. So I wanted to review a few things that people are asking. And one is, Ed, if you could talk about the timeline, when we will expect an answer. And I should say in advance, yes, we will have on our posted on our website, ehtrust.org, uh, this uh, oral arguments, as well as all of the briefs. They are on, the briefs are on our website right now. But Ed, if you could answer that question about the next steps that we have in the case, that would be great. Oh, so the, the court asked uh, the FCC within the next 24 hours to supply it with some supplemental information uh, concerning a technical committee that's established by statute at the FCC and also concerning uh, an interagency working group, radio frequency interagency working group that uh, at one time at least functioned, but I don't believe is functioning currently. Uh, the FCC has 24 hours to provide that information and we have 24 hours thereafter to respond. Those, uh, those uh, responses will be factual in nature and not argumentative. The court One of the facts. In, yep. in facts. Uh, once that's done, it's really a waiting game, waiting for the court to issue its decision. That can take anywhere from six to 12 months, uh, more or less. It's hard to predict how long it will take the court to issue its decision. And then, uh, based on the decision, uh, deci uh, the losing side can decide whether to seek further review or not, as I described earlier. One of the things, one of the factual things uh, that we have to stress is that the FCC has for years used a 30 minute averaging time. And we know from a lot of research that's been done that it's that 30 minutes is far too long an averaging time for estimating effects. And that you need to you need to look at peak exposures over much shorter periods of time because it's not the total power that's important it's the pulse and the pulse of the signal which is irregular and repeated can be very important so that the fcc has basically argued well since these things are weak we don't need to review them in the same way and they have no and they we assume they have no biological effect that is in fact the reason why when the FCC responds, the FDA Technical Electronic Products Advisory Committee will say, we've never looked at cell phones. They have not, because they have been exempt from the, from the agency's review. Thank you. Um, if we, actually I have a comment here from Dr. Joel Moskowitz of UC Berkeley. Um, I investigated the radio frequency interagency work group in 2015. It was almost defunct then. The few remaining members called it a support or interest group without any statutory authority. A few years ago, the FDA removed this group from its website. I suspect the group no longer exists as two of its key members have retired from the federal government. Thank you, Dr. Moskowitz. And his website and blog is uh, Safer EMR. 
uh, Joel Moskowitz, and I can put that information in the chat. I'll also mention and add into that that we have repeatedly written federal agencies and we have asked who is, who is a member of the uh, radio frequency interagency work group? Where is the agenda? Where are the minutes? Where is the information? And we have received not really full answers. In fact, I have uh, communicated with the FDA who said at one time in their communications that they didn't receive a presentation of the National Toxicology Program results. So if there's no agenda and there's no notes, uh, what are they doing and are they doing anything? Um, we don't have any documentation that they even have any, that they've made a determination on this issue. I think Dr. Moskowitz is correct to surmise that there is no evidence that they really weighed in on this issue or on any others. And further, uh, it will be very interesting to see how FCC counsel responds uh, to this um, given the fact that they, we have repeatedly requested uh, what consultations were made. Moreover, moreover, and the timing is important here. In December of 2019, they closed the record with a very thin justification. And then in January of 2020, they issued a report, anonymous report, with, with no evidence of any review of it, that they said was on cell phones and health. It was really just on, as, as just judges pointed out this morning, it, that report was solely on cancer and cell phones. And un, that is an, a ludicrous, a ludicrous effort by the agency to put together a scientific document that would justify the actions that it had taken a month earlier, because that document only looked at cancer and it didn't even do that. It cherry picked the studies. It excluded studies of Leonard Hardell, one of the most distinguished epidemiologists who work in this field. Uh, unfortunately, you know, Sweden started using phones sooner. They have more, they had more data. And we have explained in some length about why the case control method is so important but cancer is not the most important issue here. And it is the most difficult to study. And I say that as a cancer epidemiologist, who's a fellow in the American College of Epidemiology, we have to be very careful not to say that we insist on proof of human harm before taking steps to prevent it. That is why the work of Dr. Birnbaum is so important here. Dr. Birnbaum's amicus brief, which I urge you to read, you can find on our website, is part of the Joe Sandry submission. And in it, she clearly explains that why we test animals, we test animals in order to predict harm in humans and prevent harm in humans. So what we can say is this, every agent that we know for sure causes cancer in people will produce it in animals when adequately tested. That fact has driven the, the United States and all other modern countries to support animal testing as a way to protect people. And yet we are involved in a debate of whether we can prove enough people are sick. And we think that it's time for that framework to end. And we need to start protecting and public health and preventing harm, which is we're, we're really encouraged that American industry will know how to do this. Just like they created airbags and seatbelts, they will figure out how to make phones and technology safer. Um. Uh, Mr. Myers, could you answer the question about NEPA and how important this case is for NEPA and environmental review? Sure. 
So the, the record contains a substantial body of evidence showing that the radio frequency radiation from the infrastructure used to support wireless devices uh, uh, presents a real threat to the habitat, to the environmental habitat, birds, bees, and trees, and whatnot. And yet the commission, the FCC, failed to analyze any of that evidence. Under NEPA, the commission is not required to come to any conclusion about what the evidence says, but it is required to take a hard look at the evidence and determine whether there's a significant impact on the environment. It did not do that. Uh, because it did not do that, and because the evidence shows that there is a significant impact on the environment, the commission fell down on the job and did not perform its NEPA responsibilities. So as part of a remand, we are looking for the court to direct the commission to do a thorough NEPA analysis. That would begin at a minimum with an environmental assessment, usually termed EA, of the likely impacts of radio frequency radiation on the environment. If the impacts are found to be significant, as we think they would be, the commission would be required to do an environmental impact statement. Uh, so we're hopeful that the court addresses that issue. We raised it in our briefs. It was not addressed uh, to any significant extent, if at all, during oral argument. The court dwelled mostly on the Administrative Procedure Act issue, which is similar in that it requires reasoned decision-making. And again, the, the commission fell down on that job too. Thank you. And I'll add, oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. I was just going to state that we we did a FOIAs about whether there was an environmental review before the deployment of 5G and the densification of small cells um, and got back answers where they declined to send us, you know, they, they maintain the records and were not provided those records. But it would seem that if you're going to deploy um, mil a million and millions of new antennas into neighborhoods and so forth and all these new poles that there needs to be a proper environmental review. Right. And as you know, we have been uh, on our website recording many examples of communities and countries that are objecting to 5G. There's a growing number of them and that have, have asked for review and information about them. Um, we take exception to the Oregon State report uh, that was issued and we'll be talking about that later. But it, but it is important to note that there's a growing consensus that the 5G uh, has a lot ha, has a lot that it's lacking right now in China. In some some areas, they're turning it off at night, um, and they've they have found that the energy use of 5G is so great that it, it's not resulting in any savings whatsoever, uh, and the public in China doesn't seem to particularly want it. So it's going to be very interesting to see. Uh, what happens uh, with its with the marketing of, of that here. We think that 5G belongs in medical and military complexes where it can be wired in at the higher frequencies with a cable and that the wireless part, it really does not belong in public space. Let, let me add, uh, the FCC really has a history of ignoring its neighbor responsibilities or trying to avoid them. In the prior case that I was involved in, 
I believe in 2017, the Kitawa case, the FCC had issued an order that we challenged, uh, finding that NEPA simply did not apply to 5G infrastructure, uh, so-called small cell facilities. We won that case and the, the court remanded it and essentially found that NEPA does apply to those types of deployments and the commission has an obligation to consider NEPA when authorizing those types of facilities. Uh, now in this case, the current case that was argued this morning, we argued NEPA and many people raised NEPA in their comments in the rulemaking, in the notice of inquiry proceedings saying NEPA sh procedures should be applied. In the order that we challenged and was argued this morning, the FCC did not even address those arguments, which led us to conclude that they waived their position on NEPA and uh, really had no defense to our claim that NEPA applied. Thank you. I think it's um, so important also to clarify if it's not, you know, that the limits that we have were set for humans. They are inadequate to protect humans, but even if they were, they were not set for birds, bees, trees, natural environment. And in fact, there is none that we are aware of. There has been no review of the, uh, of the impact on the natural environment and wildlife and the development of safe limits. Because of course, birds will perch on antennas, insects, bees will fly and be closer you know, than people in, in many cases in regards to the cell uh, antennas on cell towers and, and small cells, which are of course gonna be in front of windows and in front of homes as well. So um, someone asked the question, can the FCC say we'll take another look and then a year from now say we looked and we still don't see anything of concern if, um, like, can that happen? And in fact, theoretically it could happen, but I, I, I think that with a new administration and new people running the FCC, we have a better chance that this will get uh, a really full reasoned hard look. And we, there is uh, a, a question was asked about whether there's protection uh, from radiation emissions for electronic products. And actually, I think we will find that the FCC has exempted cell phones from that kind of review uh, because they have maintained in the beginning that they were too weak in power to have a biological effect. Now, in fact, it's not the power alone, but the pulse and particularly the peak that we are most concerned about. I see that one person asked what NEPA was, so we better explain again. It's the National Environmental Protection Act. And that law, it's a federal law, requires that any agency undertaking a major federal action must engage in the analysis that Mr. Myers explained, an environmental assessment. Uh, in fact, the FCC has argued that the 5G system is not a major federal regulation. And we think that that flies in the face of reality. You're talking about a million new antennas. Uh, you're talking about needing to cut down trees in many instances because for 5G wireless signals to, to go, they don't go through trees. They don't go th through a lot of things. And so that's why on an average city block, you might need 15 
uh, antennas to ensure that the block is sufficiently covered. And I don't know quite how it works for buildings that are 50 to 100 stories tall. But if all of these things were wired into the facility in the first place, if people were using wired ethernet connections uh, and there can be innovations in technology that will develop, then we would all be much better off. Thank you. Um, one other question was about ICNRP uh, and the World Health Organization. And I wanted to add something about the WHO, the FCC, and also actually there's a third theme. I'm trying to get themes that are coming out of these questions, which is um, what did the FCC say that was inaccurate? And one of the things the FCC said was that they relied on other organizations uh, to help them because the, the judges were saying, well, the FDA is only about cancer and cell phones. What about all, everything else? And actually the, the World Health Organization, um, the, the IARC uh, decision was not referenced. Um, and the World Health Organization EMF project, very important that everyone on this call be aware that there are two entities within the World Health Organization. So when we, you know, well-meaning people go and look up uh, cell phone radiation and they go to the World Health Organization site. It has the logo, World Health Organization, and there are these fact sheets up. Those fact sheets, which say there's no proof of harm, or I don't remember the exact phrase, they were written. We don't know who wrote them, but we do know that there is a lack of transparency about who wrote that information. It is not the International Agency for Research on Cancer which classified radiofrequency as a possible carcinogen in 211 and whose advisory group has said it's time to review uh, the, the science because of the National Toxicology Program results and the Ramazzini results. It's a different entity than IARC, the EMF project. And they have not reviewed, those fact sheets are not based on a large report that looked at all the science. In fact, the last document that exists on this is from 19, 93. And it even says that, that, that they're working on an update, a monograph that will update their 1993 uh, research review on uh, radiofrequency radiation. So it, it is details that, you know, the devil's in the details here and it can get complex fast, but really it's a house of cards the entire, that's how I see it. There is no, they're there. There is no big group of scientists who are looking at all the science and making determinations based on their expertise and they've looked at everything. So I'm thankful to see that it seemed the judges were aware of that. I mean, uh, Ed, I guess my question is having litigated before and worked in other cases, what did you think about the, the judges' responses and questions? Careful here. Well, well, we were, we were, I was very pleased and surprised by the judges' questions. They clearly had read the briefs. They got into more detail than I had anticipated. The judge say to the counsel for the government, tell me why I shouldn't vote against you. I thought that was extraordinary. It gave me a lot of hope, but I don't want to, you know, get out of my, in front of my skis too far, but I am very hopeful. Uh, I, think, I think that uh, I agree. I was quite impressed with the questions that the judges asked. They obviously had really done a lot of work. And this is 
the complexity of this case is such that um, I think the fact that they gave us just 10 minutes, and by the way, took a lot more in their questioning of, of, of our representative, I think it, it all augurs well. Um, you know, frankly, um, the new Biden administration could fix all of this with the stroke of a pen. They could simply say, we're reopening this inquiry. We want to update the science. We want to include environmental impacts. We had an amicus brief from the National Resources Defense Council that was, I think, very helpful and quite instructive on just that point alone. And I wonder, um, Mr. Myers, did the lack of questions about NEPA uh, tell you that the judges have already decided we're correct on that? Well, that's... That's really hard to say. I, I, I don't know why they didn't get to NEPA other than I think they, they, they were ready to decide the case or inclined to decide the case solely on the APA, the Administrative Procedure Act issue. Uh, this could be a replay of what happened in the Kitawa case where they decided the case solely on the APA issue and didn't need to get to the NEPA issue. And, and it's a matter of judicial economy. It's common for courts to say, we don't need to get to the other issues. This one is enough for us to base our decision on. Of so, course, our brief mentioned the Administrative Procedures Act, the APA, the right. National Environmental Policy Act, NEPA, as well as the Americans for Disability Act. And the, it is interesting that as you note, the, I think the Administrative Procedures Act was so clearly violated here that that is going to be uh, the focus of what the judges will, will convey. Uh, what, what that act requires is a record of reasoned decision-making. And what the FDA did, what the FCC did rather, was to take an inquiry that began in 2013, that had previously begun, an earlier one had begun, I think in 20, 2008, and never been finished, opened it in 2013 as a notice of inquiry, collect uh, I believe more than 1,900 different uh, submissions at one of the times I looked, and never show that it had analyzed the data, evaluated the data, or in any systematic, rational way, read any of the entries. So it's not that each one of them should be accorded the great uh, significance, but the failure to have a record of having reviewed that extensive submission was in fact a failure of the Administrative Procedures Act, right. which requires that the agency show a reasoned record of decision-making. Right. Okay. Um, I'll add the, that in the, um, in the amicus brief by NRDC, there is a letter, it's at the end of the brief, I put the link in the chat, but all the way at the end, it was uh, communications that I had with the Environmental Protection Agency, where I asked, please send me the staff member of your respective I mean, who is uh, your respective agency? Because I was actually asking numerous agencies who's on the interagency radio frequency work group as I have repeatedly tried to get this information and it is never provided for me. And the EPA response is that the radio frequency interagency work group is an informal forum for exchange of information and the group does not meet or to set or advise on policy rulemaking or guidance. The group has not met in more than two years and that, that same letter also documents the EPA stating that they have no funded mandate. On the record is the documentation showing that while they were in development of safety limits, the Environmental Protection Agency related to human health 
and also to consider modulation as well, they were defunded. So they gave a presentation, they were working on it, they were tasked to do it. And then that action, the, the EPA uh, did not take any further action to finalize. In fact, we don't have federally developed safety limits related to radio frequency radiation in the United States. As stated on the FCC website, actually, I think until recently they moved that sentence down somewhere, but um, it's, it, you know, we assume that of course we have safety limits that were developed by all the experts, but in fact, that assumption is not true. And even for the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, where you would think there would be standards, uh, we allow workers to be exposed to more uh, in terms of the way they, they discuss standards, but there is no routine monitoring. There is no surveillance. The same is true for towers, of course. Aside from the uh, outstanding work done by the EMR network, there has never been independently evaluation of emissions uh, from towers. And we all want to believe that everything is safe and secure, but then there really does need to be a system of monitoring and surveillance. Again, in Israel, there is. And, and in India, there's a, there's a better system. So we, the United States needs to catch up with these other countries. And also in France, they are, one of the things we didn't touch on is the cell phone test system, which is not the way we use devices. So part of the case was also that the way cell phones and wireless devices are tested don't reflect the way we use them. They are not tested in body contact positions. However, people use devices, babies are hugging devices against their chest. Yet when phones are touching the body, they can, according to publication by Om Gandhi, which is on the record and has been known for a long time. And, and all that documentation is actually on the record as well. Um, and you can also go to PhoneGate Alert for information on this. They can exceed uh, the FCC limits for localized, meaning right where it's touching the, the area that is getting the most exposure, uh, exposure by up to 11 times. Again, the PhoneGate Alert Association has done incredible work on that as well. Um, I get, just have a comment and then we're going to close if anyone wants to add anything else. Uh, the FDA- I noticed, yes, I noticed that Dr. Linda Birnbaum- yes, I was gonna quote has, written, okay, has written that the FDA has the responsibility to work with the FCC in setting standards for RFR. The important thing to understand in the history of this is in 1999, as Dr. Birnbaum says in her amicus brief, um, the FDA requested a long-term NTP study of cell phone radiation, recognizing the growing use of cell phones at that time. This is 1999. It took, unfortunately, a decade, basically, to get that study done and finally released. And it the study went through an unprecedented level of peer review. Uh, never before has anything in the NTP gone through that kind of review. And it, after that peer review, the peer reviewers, some of whom worked for uh, commercial companies uh, like Mobile or Procter & Gamble, they looked at the data and they said that these findings by the NTP are strong and clear and compelling. And they concluded that there was evidence of a cancer risk of a rare tumor in the heart and also that they were concerned about hyperplasia, which means a proliferation of cells uh, in the brain, in the heart, in the thyroid, in the liver. And further, the NTP released studies showing DNA damage uh, in their animals after just 90 days of exposure 
to cell phone radiation that did not produce heat. So for all of these reasons, it's really important to appreciate that the, that the FDA fundamentally erred in dismissing the National Toxicology Program and that this is inconsistent with the views of experts in the field all around the world who take this finding quite seriously. And the Ramazzini Institute corroborated that finding in, with even uh, lower exposures. Okay. So thank you very much to everyone. We actually have to continue work on the case. We have supplemental information to provide and uh, we appreciate everyone's support. Uh, we will be following up with more information. Please go to Environmental Health Trust, ehtrust.org. For more, we have all the documents, the amicus briefs, the, the uh, appendix with all of the science that was submitted. A special thanks to uh, Scott McCullough, Children's Health Defense, Robert Kennedy, as well as the petitioners. Um, and I'm thankful that everyone has worked together to get this far. Thank you so much. And thank you, Theodora and, and Ed. We really, it's been, it's, it's a long journey and we're very pleased um, to see uh, that we've come to this point that at least the issue has seen the light of day and we really did get a day in court. Thank you. Okay. Thank you, Ed.